start doing all this mental math of just like, how much is this going to cost me? And then you start questioning, well, how else can I get miles? Welcome to Money Self Made, a podcast where we dive into tactical tips, tricks, and strategies for you to master your money and live a meaningful life. I'm so excited for today's guest, Jason Yee, an old friend of mine who is a developer relations director by day, but by night, a chocolate maker, digital nomad, travel hacker, and a world class chef with a wonderful palate and the greatest taste in restaurants you'll ever find. I have traveled all over the world with Jason. He is a wonderful friend, an incredible resource. If you're looking to get back out in the world and travel now that things are reopening again, this is an episode you are not going to want to miss. Before we get started, please remember to smash the like button if you're watching on YouTube and remember to subscribe wherever you happen to be listening. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Without further ado, please help me welcome Jack of all trades, master of many talents, Jason Yee. Travel hacker, you're a digital nomad. You're, I would say, a five star chef. And I kind of wonder, like, what you don't do now. You're clearly a talented biographer. So Jason does everything and does it exceptionally. So I'm really excited to have him on the show today. Thanks for having me. I guess if if we were to talk about things that I don't do, I don't really travel much anymore because obviously, as people know, given our world sort of settled down too, a little bit less nomading. Um, so I ended up buying a townhouse in Portland, Oregon. So as of two months ago, I am now a homeowner. I'm just going to let you know, I'm in a bathroom right now of my Airbnb in Austin. <laughs> and it's like the only setup I could figure out that would be sort of quiet, recorded. I just rediscovered my whole digital nomad life but I've been locked down like you probably have for about a year trying to develop other hobbies like this one. Yeah. The, the pandemic hobbies is definitely a fun one. My, my latest hobby I would say is craft chocolate making. Yes, so, that's yeah. Awesome. For folks that, that are interested in that, feel free to hit me up. I'm sure Annalise will have my, uh, my contact info available, but uh, if you want a, a hobby that's delicious and simultaneously extremely frustrating, Start making chocolate. <laughs> I love it. Are you selling the chocolate? Is it a business or is it just like a passion project? It's sort of a business. Since this is a financially related podcast and people are interested in, in the business of things, uh, I have enough like crazy things going on in my life that I was like, running a business is hard. So I salute everybody who's listening that actually is running a business. I decided... Um, that rather than actually having to deal with any of that, uh, I could actually help do maybe some good in the world. So I consider my chocolate donation wear. And for a while, I was just pointing out really cool like causes that people could donate to. Uh, obviously, living in Portland, Oregon, Black Lives Matter, and that whole movement was a big thing. So I encourage people to donate to the BLM movement uh, and various things like that. And it was simply a go donate. I'll take, you know, honor system. I'll take your word for it. And if you go donate at any amount, I'll send you some chocolate. That is so awesome. I love that, Jason. Yes, Jason is a kick-ass person and obviously a philanthropist. What are, so, so BLM is your main, your main gig for the recommendation? That was mostly it for the chocolate. Yeah. 
Very cool. What kind of chocolate flavors do you have? Yeah, so I've been doing um, single origin bean de bar, and it turns out that one of the most prominent cacao importers in the U.S. for craft chocolate is actually here in Portland. Um, and so I've picked up beans that he's gotten from uh, farms in India and Peru and uh, Venezuela, kind of all over the place. And they're all, it's surprising how different they all are um, when it's not mixed together, right? A lot of the commercial chocolate that we get is really commodity chocolate. It's poor quality. It's all mixed together. And chocolate like wine is very regional and there are these huge differences. So the one from India, um, if you ever are out there in Whole Foods or your local like specialty market and you see chocolate from India, I uh, highly recommend that you pick it up. The area in India is called uh, Animali and it's extremely citrusy and fruity. It's, you would swear that they'd put lemons in the chocolate because uh, it's just, it tastes like chocolate lemonade. That sounds delicious. You're making me crave chocolate right now. <laughs> and I was just eating chocolate before the show started. So very cool. Oh, well, I have to try a bar. How do I get one? I will send you some. Do, should I order it or something? I can definitely, I would be happy to pay you. It would be like a joy. No, I mean, as as I mentioned, I'm not really doing it as a business. It's sort of a donationware thing. So do something good in the world and I trust you. I'll send you some chocolate. I promise I'll, I'll think of something really great. And I really, I support that cause that you are supporting. So I'll figure something out at least. Yeah, it's been a good year to volunteer time if you have extra on your hands. That is definitely one of the advantages of the pandemic is having a bit more time to do things. Definitely. Yes. And I should say it's really apropos that you are making chocolate because you have such an excellent palate. Jason is possibly the best chef I've, I know personally um, and also the best restaurant picker. So, I mean, I know it's a little off course of the topic, but if you want to talk a little bit about your culinary background, I would love to hear about it. Yeah. It's an interesting story. So, I, I work in tech, which is how I met Annalise. Uh, we both worked for the same company. We were doing some marketing stuff. But like many people, like many of you listening, I liked cooking. Um, and so I was living in Denver at the time, and I found the local culinary school and decided, well, hey, they've got evening classes. I should go and learn a little bit more. Uh, and I highly encourage everybody to do that. It's fun to learn more about how to cook and, and stuff like that. I went for a series of classes, and after the first class, the chef instructor came up to me and was like, you didn't learn anything. You already knew everything that I, that I was teaching tonight. And, you know, my response was like, yeah, but it was fun, right? It's always fun to cook, um, especially when you are in a culinary school environment where you've got like, you know, restaurant level you know, stoves and ovens and like all this equipment that you're like, yeah, I could crank this thing up and it gets like 10 times hotter than this crappy stove in my apartment. That kind of set up our friendship. Um, he, he and I stayed friends for, for a bit and it got to the point one night that he got me extremely drunk and he was like, you've got to just quit your job and go work in a restaurant or like go to culinary school full time. And I was like, well, I have a really good paying job. I don't want to quit my job. Um, and as anybody who, who's ever worked in the service industry knows, like the pay is awful. 
So uh, after getting me really drunk, he, he was like, I know, I have a great idea. You can come help me teach classes and you'll be my, my TA, my teaching assistant. So me and my drunken state is like, this sounds amazing. I get to go work for this guy for free. <laughs> and so I did, actually. It was super fun. Um, it was well worth spending the time. Um, so basically, once a week, I would go into work a couple hours early and just like skip my lunch break and then leave, you know, really early. And then I'd go over to the culinary school and I'd help him teach classes. And I did that for several years until he ended up uh, rage quitting from that job because the culinary school was actually pretty awful. And so then by that point, I had actually made friends with a lot of the chefs around Denver. And so my buddy, Troy Gard, uh, who owns now an empire, a restaurant empire in Denver, um, at the time he only had one restaurant. So he and I ended up chatting. And so I asked him if I could go cook at his restaurant. So I took off a week of vacation, went down and just went and cooked. And it was super fun. It was a great vacation for me. He didn't tell any of the other staff that I was just there having fun. They thought I was actually interviewing for a job. So they offered me a job at the end of the week uh, and I decided to take it. And so I basically had a full-time job doing computer programming and a part-time job as a chef. And I did that for about a year. That's a lot. That's really impressive. Uh, how did you not burn out during that time? How did you stay energetic and keep it going? I mean, that's a, that's a great question, right? That's, I feel like that's the question of everybody that has a side hustle is how do you not burn out? And I think that largely it's whether you're passionate about it. And so for me, it was like, I really loved my day job. I was hanging out basically with my best friends, you know, like we were all doing the, you know, the tech thing, but it was, you know, half the time we were playing foosball and we'd go out to lunch together and, you know, we were just hanging out, making cool things. So that was really fun. And it was a different part of my brain, right? It's very analytical. How do I solve this computer problem? And on the flip side, like the cooking in a restaurant is very physical. It's, I mean, it, I, I'd equate it to anybody that has, you know, that side passion, if they're a runner or if they're a swimmer or whatever sport they're into. Uh, I've always called cooking in a restaurant an endurance sport of fire and knives because, you know, you're working a 12-hour shift. It's extremely physical. And it's all about how fast can I be, how fast and accurate can I be in replicating a dish, right? An order comes in, people want their food quickly. So you've just got to crank it out and it's got to be perfect. So that's what you aim for. Uh, so you're exercising different things, but as long as you have that passion for it, I think you'll you'll be able to keep going and keep doing it. That is great advice. And I agree with you. I think if it's um, actually oddly harder to be on the computer all day, for example, and then clock out and still be on the computer all night. So it's cool that you were doing kind of that shift. It's probably good cardio as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's most of life is about balance, right? Having, having things that, that help offset. And so, yeah, just finding a good balance. So do you have any great like Anthony Bourdain kitchen nightmares type stories? I love that book. I don't know if you've read it, but have you yeah. seen any? <laughs> or give I, me advice I love Anthony Bourdain. Um, yeah. yeah, he was 
such an influence. His whole notion that working in a restaurant is like working on a pirate ship is is very apt. Although it's, you know, as the industry has progressed, I feel like it's maybe maybe a little less body. I mean, there's definitely pranks. Um, but I, I think one of the nice things is it is becoming a bit more accessible as as food has progressed and especially, you know, fine dining, as we've gotten to this point of, you know, more and more people are self-appointed foodies and, and really into it, you get more and more people that are interested in cooking. And so you get less of that boys club locker room kind of feel, and you start getting more of a professional environment where people actually are really serious about their craft. That said, I, you know, I had my hazing, um, one of the one of the first restaurant gigs that I had was for another buddy of mine um, at a different restaurant, and yeah, they locked me in the walk in uh, walk in refrigerator for a bit. And are you serious? Oh yeah. my gosh! I'm glad you survived. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that long, but it was definitely one of those like, "Hey, Jason, go fetch whatever it was," and they sent me into the walk in, and then the door closed and the lights went out. <laughs> And, (laughs) you know, so you try to get out and you're like, okay, they're clearly blocking the door. I guess I'm just hanging out in here for the next 20 minutes. (laughs) Did they have to thaw you out? It was, it was cold, but yeah, yeah, not too bad. Uh, After being in the, in the hot kitchen for most of the night, it wasn't actually that bad of a a, a gig because it meant that I got a 20 minute break and I got to cool down. True. Very true. Was it as cold as the Eiffel Tower in February? It was not as cold as that. That was really cold. (laughs) So what is the first place you want to go travel as soon as things open up again? So the the fun thing is my partner is Estonian. And so we haven't been back to see her family in quite a while. So I suspect that Estonia might be the first international place that we go back to. That is so cool. I've always wanted to go to Estonia because it's that tiny little country in Europe, right? It's the little... It is one of many tiny ones. Um, It is not in the, probably not in the top 10 of the tiniest, but it is tiny. Um, It is up in the very northeastern corner on the border of Russia. And then across the water, across the the Baltic Sea is uh, Finland. So generally, if you're going to travel to Estonia, you fly into Helsinki, Finland, and then you take the ferry across the, the water. That's much cheaper than flying into Tallinn, Estonia, which is the capital. Uh, so that's that's travel tip number one. Don't fly into Tallinn unless you happen to find an incredible deal. But generally, flying into Helsinki, taking the ferry, and the cheap ferry that you want to take is the overnight ferry, which... So more travel tips. Uh, the ferry ride itself is only a couple hours. Um, it's not very far from uh, Helsinki to Tallinn, but they have an overnight ferry. And so on our first trip going over there, it's like, well, why the overnight ferry? Like, it doesn't seem like it should take that long. And it doesn't. So the funny thing is the boat trip takes like two hours and it gets into Tallinn and then they don't let you off. So you're stuck on the boat overnight, even though you're like literally on the seafront of the city. And the reason is because obviously it means that now you have to eat dinner on the boat and they can jack up the prices and, you know, you want drinks after dinner. So they jack up the prices. And of course, you know, they don't let you off first thing in the morning. So you have to get breakfast on the boat. So that is a funny thing. Um, 
The other hilarious thing about it is, and I highly recommend that everybody does this, there's a duty-free shop on the boat. As you know, oftentimes there is when you have international travel, there's always duty-free because people want to save money. And if you know anything about most of Europe, the alcohol taxes are insanely high to the point of like often being like a full 100% markup on things. So what you'll see when you get on the ferry, and it happens for all the ferries, not just the overnight, but people will actually rent moving trucks, like small cargo vans, drive aboard the ferry, buy pallets of booze. Uh, So went into the duty-free shop and saw a guy with a hand truck just with like 24 cases of beer, like loaded up. And he's just like, you know, do 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 going along, going to go down to my cargo truck and load it up. So they literally, it's cheaper to get a ferry ticket, rent a moving van, drive aboard, buy all of your booze, get to, you know, the other side and then immediately turn around than it is to actually pay the taxes on all of that booze. That's hilarious. That's crazy. It makes sense because you you can pop around so much in Europe at airports and stuff. Of course, you should just buy everything at the airport then. Yeah. And so, yeah. And with the ferry trip, it's like 30 bucks. So 30 bucks versus like literally doubling the cost of your your booze. That's crazy. I'm really glad you let me know. That's interesting. Okay. So I always thought booze was really cheap in Europe. I always loved the like, we, I went to Greece and the wine was like a dollar a cup and it was so fun and such good wine. Is that because it's taxed on the back end on your check? Whereas in the US, the tax is like hidden in the alcohol as a sin tax already? That's a good question. I think it's a separate tax. Um, it largely depends on where the, the country of origin is. And so, I mean, for a lot of them, yes, they have the vice tax of like you're buying booze. So it's it's pretty high and it tends to be much higher in in northern europe and like scandinavia and stuff but it also depends on the origin right so greece france like spain the wine is dirt cheap because it's made there and obviously they're not gonna jack up the prices on their own people right because they need to sell this wine um but largely a lot of that taxes come when it's made elsewhere and so estonia starting to get a really good not just good, really amazing craft beer scene. But for most of what they've got, you know, if you think of whiskey, vodka, gin, whatever, all of that's usually made outside the country. Similar with most of Scandinavia, most of it's going to be imported. And so a lot of that gets extremely heavily taxed. Wow. Okay, cool. Interesting. I learned something new. I love it. How did you meet someone from Estonia? Yeah, uh, my partner is, she's... Uh, got dual citizenship, so she became a U.S. citizen. I met her through the tech community here in Portland, Oregon. So we've known each other for quite a while. And when I was actually nomading, a lot of that nomading was really kind of going by my whims of like, where do you go next? Um, some of it was for work, right? And so if I'd go to a place for work, I'd usually go and stay there for a bit until the next work thing or until I was like, cool, I should find a new place. Uh, and her being Estonian, she had always told me, you should go visit Estonia. And like most people is like, I've heard of this place. I vaguely know where it is, meaning like most Americans, I know it's in Europe, but other than that, I don't know. 
And so, yeah, that was the thing is it's like, well, similar to you, like me inviting you to come hang out in Paris. I'm like, I have a bajillion miles. So let me spend some miles and we'll fly you out here and you can be my tour guide. And so that's kind of how we hit it off. Very smooth, very smooth. How did your travel hacking brilliance come to you and how, where is it now? So living in Portland, Oregon, I had a job that was based out in New York. And so every six weeks to two months, I would fly from Portland to New York. And that round trip is, you know, roughly 5,000 miles. And so you realize after a while, okay, well, if I'm doing, call it every two months, that means six trips a year times 5,000, that's 30,000 miles a year. That actually, when you start to look it up and you're like, oh, 30,000 miles at the time, it was like, oh, I could get a free round trip ticket in the US, right? Just like basic coach, like, well, of course I should sign up for some program and I should try to stick to a certain airline because shoot, the the residual benefits of these work trips is that I get a free trip. So, you know, just like you would with anything, right? Like you go to the same coffee shop and they've got the punch card and yeah, of course I'm going to get the punch card because it doesn't cost me anything. And every, you know, 10 coffees, I get a free one. So that's where it started. But you quickly realize with the whole miles game that, you know, yes, you can get a free round trip coach economy class ticket, to somewhere in the U S and like, that's not a bad thing, but then you also realize that they often have restrictions and there's only certain times that you can go. And then you're looking, Oh, I really want to go to, you know, Miami. Oh, but you can't actually use your miles to go to Miami because all of those availability are gone, but we can send you to Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, that's available. (laughs) And so you, you quickly realize that, yes, there's this, this entire complex game that the airline industry has created. And so then you start thinking, well, where do I really want to go, right? What, what's the end goal? And it's, it's obviously not to go to Lincoln, Nebraska. Apologies to anybody that's actually in Lincoln, Nebraska. But obviously, you know, you, you start targeting these things of like, well, I want to go to Hawaii or starting to think bigger. You know, I want to go to London or, or even bigger, right? I want to go to Japan or I want to go to Australia or New Zealand. And so you, your mind, like anything else, starts to have these, these sort of fantasies of like, where's the place that I want to visit that if I had to pay cash would be kind of expensive, right? It's, you know, a lot of these are those, for for a lot of people, depending on your finances, might be your once in a lifetime trip, right? Because like trips to Japan are easily ten thousand dollars when you factor in hotel and food and airfare and all these other things. You know, you have this in mind of like, where do I want to go? And you start doing that mental math or that back of napkin math of how much is this going to cost me? And you start to realize, okay, I need more miles, right? And so depending on what you do for work, some of those miles might be from your job, right? If your job involves travel, sure, you can get some of those miles from that. But then you start thinking, how else can I get miles? And so then there's the obvious things of like credit cards, right? So which credit card should I get? And does that play with the miles that I've got from my airline? Or does that, is that like, you know, have its own reward system? And what does that look like? And what can that get me? And then obviously there's the 
you start diving deeper down that rabbit hole of, well, what are those points worth, right? If it's not the airline miles, if it's something like, you know, Capital One rewards points, well, what the heck's a point? What's that worth? Uh, and so you start to do the mental math of like, well, it takes X number of points to get the trip that I want. And I value that trip at X number of dollars. So you do the math and you're like, okay, a point is worth this much. And then there's the separate math of, well, how many points do I get for every dollar I spend? And so you start to balance that out, right? Of cool, as long as the value of this point is worth more than the dollar amount that I have to spend to generate the point, then it's worth doing. And then if you are kind of crazy about this whole thing, you dive even further down the rabbit hole into, well, I can only actually spend so much and stay within my budget. You should never go into credit card debt just to get points. Um, never. I mean, you should avoid credit card debt altogether, which I'm sure Annalise All has. All for that. <laughs> yeah, you've probably got entire episodes about this. I do. Yes. If they haven't been published yet, but yeah, I do. (laughs) So if they haven't been published yet, keep listening to the podcast. They will come out. Like you, you start doing all this mental math of just like, how much is this going to cost me? And then you start questioning, well, how can I generate points without actually spending money? And so as you do that, you start to discover these interesting little tiny secret communities of people that are super into this. And you start hearing these stories of people like the most famous is uh, the U S mint had when they were introducing the $1 coin, you could actually buy $1 coins because you know, people collect coins. So they, the U S mint in, you know, their idea to make commerce and, acquiring coins easy, you could buy them with a credit card. So $1 in your credit card got you $1 coin. And then all you had to do is deposit the coins back into your bank account and pay off your credit card. So you had no money lost, but your credit card was making all these points. So cool, you need 5,000 points. So you need to spend $5,000. So just buy $5,001 coins and then deposit them back into your bank and you know, just cycle this money. Obviously that didn't last very long because people were literally buying thousands of dollars worth of coins on their credit cards and not even opening it. They would get shipped to them, you know, in those rolls like you'd get from the bank. And so what's the point of unwrapping that? You just keep it in the box. You go to the bank, you drop it at the teller. Like here, I've got a thousand dollars of coins. That was a really bad thing. Um, That also is basic money, money laundering. So it's not so great. Yeah. That's hilarious. I'm sorry. That was amazing. I've been laughing out loud, like on mute over here. I just have to say good story. It's a crazy story and it is pretty hilarious, but you realize that, well, that can't be the only game out there. And so people have found more and more complex ways of doing this. In my heyday, I was going to the grocery store and buying uh, Visa prepaid gift cards. Um, so you see them when you're checking out or at the gift card section of the grocery store, right? You can buy these. They look like credit cards, but they're actually prepaid and you can get them usually up to like a couple hundred bucks. And so because it's a grocery store, you can pay with your credit card. But then the question is, well, now I have this prepaid Visa or MasterCard gift card. How do I get that money back out? 
Um, and there used to be this, this program from American Express called Bluebird. Bluebird was the idea of let's provide sort of a bank account for people that had really bad credit scores uh, and couldn't get a bank account anywhere else. Bluebird worked in conjunction with Walmart and people could go to Walmart and then they could pay cash or cash equivalents like a Visa prepaid gift card and load that into their account. And then with the account, they could then write checks or they had a sort of debit card that went along with it. So I used to do this weekly routine of going to the grocery store, buying my groceries and several hundred dollars of Visa prepaid gift cards, and then driving up the road to Walmart and depositing those gift cards into my Bluebird account. And then with that Bluebird account, because it had checks, writing a check and paying off my credit card. And so similar to the, the buying money or single dollar coins loop, that's what I did on the regular basis for probably about a year. Turns out also, again, this is money laundering, not illegal money laundering, but it's still a form of money laundering. And so American Express realized this, that the government was essentially going to send people to prison if they didn't stop this. So they kind of killed that. And I'm not sure if you can even get Bluebird anymore. There are still schemes out there. I'm not going to tell you what they are. I don't actually do please them. Tell me, please tell me. You don't have to, but please. Uh, I will say that Flyer Talk is the uh, number one resource for a lot of this stuff. So if you go to flyertalk.com, the forums there are full of people who are way more knowledgeable than me um, about literally everything travel related and credit card related and what they call this whole process is called manufactured spend. So that's really what you want to look for is manufactured spend. In flyer talk lingo, it's often called MS, not the bad disease MS, but go on flyer talk, look it up. I'm sure there's even new, new schemes that I'm not aware of. But if you're into it, my number one advice is create a spreadsheet and track everything. Because obviously it's a good way to get yourself in trouble if you're not on top of things because you're buying a bunch of money equivalents. And if you don't pay things off, instantly you're in massive credit card debt. Genius. That's excellent advice. And you're right to not tell people because we don't want to um, encourage behavior that is irresponsible. Um, but it's always great entertainment purposes. Yeah. Also, my, my other advice for that... I'm feeling the pain of it right now because of our pandemic world is build up, like set a goal for yourself and build up to that and then pull the trigger, do it. So as Annalise knows, I used to be married. As I talked about that fantasizing of what your dream trip would be, ours was always, let's go to Australia, New Zealand in first class, right? Because you're, you're talking about a flight that is insanely long on top of the fact that you're going over the international date line. So it's like literally you're on a plane for almost two days. And so you, you want to go first class. You don't want to go economy when you're doing that. So that was always the goal, right? It's like, let's save up enough miles that we can both fly first class round trip to Australia and New Zealand. And so I saved up that up. Um, and obviously when I say I used to be married, I'm no longer um, so we got divorced and that never really happened. And then at some point it just became this like hoarding of miles. Like I, I don't hoard 
physical things. But I think everybody has their own like hoarder weakness and my hoarding became miles. And so I'm literally sitting on like mountains of points in various hotel chains and airlines and things that I haven't used and I would love to use, um, except for now I can't. We all feel feel your pain, I think, on that one. I know I do. (laughs) Yeah. The other reason to use your miles as quickly as possible is a lot of the programs, be it hotel chains or airlines, constantly do devaluations. Um, You can think of it as inflation for fake money, right? There's the idea that inflation happens with all currencies. A dollar 30 years ago was worth more than a dollar now. And similarly, a point 10 years ago or an airline mile 10 years ago could get you a lot more than one does now. And so oftentimes these things change and they'll change drastically with almost little or no warning. And so as you're saving up, if your goal is to go first class to Australia, try to get that immediately because you never know. It could be the next month. It could be a year from now. But at some point, that airline is going to be going to come around and say, you know, we've got too many of these miles outstanding. So rather than it taking 200,000 miles to get you to the place you want to go, it now costs you 500,000 miles. And they can do that arbitrarily and there's really no recourse. So the best thing that you can do is just spend your miles. That is great advice. That actually pertains to a lot of reader questions that we have and probably um, some questions I would love to ask as well, uh, especially in the wake of the pandemic. So are you ready for your first reader question? Absolutely. Great. Charles Coffey asks, how do you get companies to extend points or status when we couldn't travel last year. He says he's noticing a lot of dropped points and all of his statuses has dropped levels. Not cool. I don't know if there's a way to do this, but if you have any thoughts, I'm totally open. Yeah. So most of the airlines and hotels have extended statuses. So as long as you had it for 2020, so essentially you earned it in 2019 and you were supposed to have it for 2020, most of them have extended it for 2021. I should also say that most of them that would expire. So for example, one of my airlines is Singapore Air. Singapore Air is a little bit of an oddball in that when you acquire miles, uh, they expire. And it's not like a lot of airlines or programs will expire if you don't accrue, right? So as long as you keep accruing, nothing ever expires. Singapore actually is on a time basis. You have three years to spend those miles or they go away. Um, And it goes on a month-to-month basis. They've actually extended that. So everything that expired last year, they just added another year to. That's one that I desperately need to spend as soon as I can. So for most of your programs, you should be good for 2021. It's very unclear if they're going to do that for 2022, although it's highly unlikely that they will. Uh, because as as the vaccine rolls out, I'm sure that they'll probably have adjusted schedules, essentially meaning that they're going to assume that everybody's had the possibility to get the vaccine by the end of summer. And so they won't, they'll likely want you to do some travel in the fall and in the winter in order to maintain that for 2022. That said, some programs didn't do that courtesy extension. If they didn't, Uh, There's two ways to do it. One is, as I mentioned, a lot of programs will expire if you don't accrue, right? So 
the idea being that as long as you're adding points, nothing ever expires. So for those, you'll want to look at whether you can get a credit card, right? Easy way to do that is, you know, if you've got an airline and it's got a credit card, get that credit card and, you know, buy a coffee on it once a month. And that'll get you just a few miles coming in and it's enough to prevent them from ever expiring. So that's, that's an easy way to do it. The harder way is if they don't have a credit card or any way that you can accrue those miles is to put on your, your negotiator hat and call them up. Generally does tend to be hard, but if you can prove that you've got a track record of travel with them or staying with them or whatever they do, that generally is the best case, right? The idea of I've been a, an Alaska Airlines MVP uh, gold member for six years or so. And so being able to, to point to that, right, and say, well, yes, obviously I didn't do any travel for this year, but in the previous X number of years, I've consistently hit this. It would be a shame if you lost my loyalty because if all my points go away, I'm starting from scratch. Why don't I just start with a company that, you know, had the courtesy of extending this and realized the constraints that people were under, I should just go look at them or, you know, you can be nice and extend this courtesy and I'll stay with you because obviously I've been a loyal, loyal customer of yours. So generally that's the, that's the tack that you should take if they don't, I don't know. I feel like anybody that doesn't extend it, given the circumstances is kind of a jerk and Jerk companies don't really deserve your loyalty. Well put, well put. I like that a lot. And yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize how much negotiation power you have when it comes to credit cards. If you just call them up and ask you, you get what you ask for a lot of times with these things. Yeah, I would say that that also extends, as you mentioned, to credit cards. You know, a lot of the great travel credit cards have relatively high annual fees. Um, And this is something I'm saying partly as a reminder to myself, because you know, one of my credit cards has a pretty hefty fee and I, ha- I really haven't used it this year other than I think it's the recurring credit card for my cell phone bill, which means obviously those points aren't going to go away, but paying a few hundred bucks, you know, this year for something that I really haven't received any benefit from is kind of steep. And so those folks are absolutely empowered to negotiate. So if you've got a credit card, that's got a 300 or 400 or $500 annual fee, it's worth your time to call them up, especially as it gets towards renewal and, you know, tell them, Hey, we've got this situation. I haven't been able to use your benefits. Can you waive the annual fee this year for me? Uh, and if you can't, can you do- downgrade it? So most of those high annual fee credit cards have, other alternatives that are less, right? So if you think about, I've got, you know, there's things like the Chase Sapphire Reserve, which I think is like a $500 annual fee. There's other Chase credit cards that have lower fees on the level of $100 or $150. They'll allow you to keep your points, but you don't have to pay that high annual fee. And so it's worth having that as a backup. I don't want to say threat, but option, right? Of if you don't waive my fee, then let's downgrade me so I can keep my points and pay less. And that's something that those, those telephone customer service folks are incentivized to prevent. And so they are incentivized to keep you as a customer and keep you on that high annual fee credit card 
So waiving it once for you is definitely something they're, that they're interested in doing. I agree. That sounds really smart. I love it. Okay, cool. Max Goldberg asks, under what circumstances is it a better idea to cash out points than use them as currency for tickets, et cetera? For folks who haven't traveled all year due to pandemic and are sitting on a ton of points, what are the best all points deals for travel this fall? So it's kind of a two-part question. Let me know if you need me to break it down for yeah. you again. So the first question is essentially how long do you sit on points that have a certain value for travel or hotel stays or whatever the program is versus cashing them out? And that really is, that comes down to your own personal situation. And the reason I say that is because the value of a point or mile is highly specific to you. And it's highly specific to you because only you know what that that fantasy trip that you're saving up for is, right? For some folks, again, you know, mine was round trip first class to Australia, New Zealand. That costs a certain amount. And so you, as you dive into this, you have to do the math of what would that actually cost or what would you be willing to pay, right? and dividing that by the number of points. Uh, and so that gives you the, the equivalent value of a point versus how much could you actually exchange it for a cash if you could, because some programs won't even let you. To illustrate this, you know, mine is, my value of what that point is was based on the value of what a first-class ticket would be on that long trip. My dad, on the other hand, goes to Hong Kong quite a bit. And so Hong Kong, again, that's you know travel from the West Coast to Asia. Generally, you're looking at 12,000, 13,000 miles round trip. And so if he would do that once, sometimes he'd do that twice. Again, that starts to add up. But it wasn't ever quite enough for him to want to save that up and do a first-class trip. And so he started doing the math and it turns out that the cost of upgrading from premium economy to business uh, for his airline, which was Cathay Pacific, was a huge amount in dollars. Uh, But in terms of miles, it was actually relatively low. So his conversion rate was massive. He was getting more value out of his miles than I would out of doing a first class trip. So it really comes down to that, you know, again, that personal definition of what do you plan to use them for? And you have to start doing that math. As we think of travel this fall, keep hearing about things like uh, the EU, like not really letting people in, even though, you know, you might be safe and everyone's getting vaccinated, there's still some concern. So there's the question of, are we going to have vaccine passports? Like, what do you have to show to prove that you've had this, uh, you know, the vaccine? And what sort of allowances do you have? Um, so there's a lot that's up in the air. I say that as someone that actually is is paying attention to this. As mentioned, my partner's Estonian, so we're looking at trying to go there. So it's constantly paying attention to, to what the situation is. It's also paying attention to what the situation is like over there. And it turns out that while a lot of Europe was really good about uh, quarantine and keeping numbers low that's since turned around. So a lot of places in Europe are actually much more dangerous than here in the States in terms of risk. So some of it's going to just be figuring out where you want to go. 
And then again, similarly, it kind of plays into that. Well, once you figure out where you want to go, you have to do the math of how much is this worth to me? And, you know, what other value can I get? Because in all honesty, a lot of what we're looking at with travel in the U.S., you know, as you mentioned, you you went to Austin, there's Nashville. I'm assuming that you're renting a car and just driving because it's a easy drive. Yes. Yeah. None of it's flying because it's safer too. Um, and I'm like slightly, slightly at risk because I'm at like a touch of asthma. Um, so yeah, driving in a big van, it's very classic American trailer across the U.S. type of trip, which I like, but no points are coming or being spent from it. Yeah. But I mean, well, that does bring up though, right? Because if you are doing a big road trip, there's the option of do you use your car or do you rent a car? Because rental car companies have point systems too, right? So how much value can you get? Like what would they, what would a rental car cost you in cash versus how many points would it cost you to rent that same car? Similarly, you're in, in Airbnb. Airbnb, I still am angry at them because they don't have a point system after living as a nomad and living out of Airbnbs for a year and a half. But hotels, hotels have points. Out. Right. Great call out. So yeah, like you're staying in places. How much, again, is that value of where are you going to go? How much does that hotel going to actually cost you versus what will it cost you in points? All that said, I think deals are going to be pretty slim. Most of these companies are hurting. And so it's much easier to get a cash deal from a hotel or from an airline than to use points. So generally for, for what I was looking at, basically, so my, my hotel chains that I, I usually go to are Hilton and IHG. IHG being things like Crown Plazas, Intercontinentals, Holiday Inns. <laughs> so a lot of stays at Holiday Inns to earn the miles, a lot of spending that on Intercontinentals and Crown Plazas and, and the nicer ones. But a lot of these hotels, especially the luxury ones, because they're just desperate to get people in, they're doing specials where, you know, you can stay there for a hundred bucks a night. Uh, and generally my cutoff for most of them was if it's 250 or 300 or above, I'd spend points. If it was less than that, it was generally cheaper to just pay it. And so again, you have to do that math for yourself of like, what's the ultimate end goal? Uh, what are you saving up for? That said, you know, take my other advice of things could change, they could devalue. I doubt they will anytime soon, just because of where we're at. It's very situationally specific, unfortunately. So uh, I can give you some big overarching things to consider, but I can't actually tell you what you should do. 100%. That's excellent advice. I agree. Um, okay, cool. And then I have another one from, and then I have a ton of my own, but we'll, we'll give the fans uh, first dibs. So Ryan Singer asks, besides signing up for the points programs, how can a high corporate travel person maximize bang for effort rewards? Yeah. So there's obviously signing up for all the things. Um, and you should, if you are, depending on what you mean by high corporate, you can sort of double dip. Um, when you say high co corporate, if you're just a cog in a much larger corporate machine, you probably can't double dip because your company is already doing that. If you have your own company or you happen to be 
you know, high corporate enough that you are an executive in your own company, most airlines have a corporate program. And so that corporate program, obviously in the same way that the points program incentivizes you as an individual consumer to fly on that airline and have loyalty, the corporate programs do the same thing, right? The idea is that if your company is loyal to an airline, then your, your company can benefit. And so for some airlines, you can double dip and essentially they'll allow you to earn your individual points and your company to earn points. And so you can start to add these up. And so now you have two ways of earning. So that's one way. The other way, um, and it depends again on where you are in the company and how much you like your company, uh, I think everybody who's listening along has seen Up in the Air. If you haven't, Up in the Air is a fantastic movie. It was a book. The book is very different from the movie. The movie's great, though. George Clooney, Anna Kendrick. There's a scene where George Clooney is like eating dinner and he has like three or four plates of food. And Anna Kendrick comes up and she's like, Oh, are you hungry? And he's like, No. But our per diem allows us to spend X amount of dollars every day, and each dollar is a point or a mile. And so why wouldn't I just like max that out every single day, even if I'm not going to eat it? So there is stuff like that that you can do. All right, cool. Now I get to dig into my own questions. So one that I would love to know is your favorite rewards programs and credit cards. And I know you're loyal to certain airlines and certain hotels, and I'd love to know kind of the reasoning and why. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I always caveat this with my personal, my choices for airlines are vastly different from most people's. I live in Portland, Oregon, as I'd mentioned Portland is a second tier city. So we're not a primary hub for anybody. That said, Alaska Airlines is hubbed out of Seattle and a lot of their small planes are run by a subsidiary called Horizon Air. Horizon Air is actually mostly based out of Portland, Oregon. That means I get you know, hourly or less commuter flights up to Seattle and from Seattle, I can get basically anywhere. I also have commuter flights that fly to Boise, Idaho, and a bunch of other places. So part of my loyalty for Alaska is simply that they're extremely convenient for where I live. The other loyalty reason that I've got for Alaska is that they stuck with actual miles. So as you if you are if you've been in the miles game for a while you remember that it used to actually just be miles and so when i said portland new york is 5000 and what west coast us to asia is roughly 12 and a half 13000 things like that that's the actual miles flown and so that used to be the basis on which you got points so you would earn status based on how far you've flown most airlines that starts at 25,000 miles or segments, essentially how many individual flights you've taken, because there are a lot of people that, you know, commuting Portland to Seattle is only 500 miles. And so you're never going to get status that way. And so they decided, Hey, we've got a lot of these people that fly every week between these two places. Let's still reward them. So those are the ways you get status, but they realized that people like me, 
would find these interesting flights that were extremely cheap, that would fly incredibly long distances just to get miles because it's cheaper to pay for that cheap flight and get a ton of miles than it was to actually fly real flights. Case in point, I once spent $300. It was Portland to New York to LA to Atlanta down to the Dominican Republic up to Florida back out to LA to Denver and then Denver back to Portland. Uh, it took me over two days. I slept in New York on the way out. So I did the Portland, LA, New York bit. And I think I slept in New York or LA on that way. And then like I slept in another airport on the way back. It's kind of a blur. Uh, I literally was in the Dominican Republic for an hour uh, as they cleaned the plane and I like grabbed a beer and listened to the band playing in the airport because they had this amazing salsa band. And then I got back on the plane. That flight cost me $300 and it got me like 25,000 miles or something stupid. That's yes. incredible. What is $25,000 worth in like 25,000 points worth in dollars in your equations? I think the valuation at that point it was basically, I think it was any time a flight was less than four cents per mile was like the cutoff, four or five cents per mile. You, you do the, the valuation of how many miles am I getting and then multiply that by four cents. And if the price was cheaper than that, then it was worth doing, assuming that you could collect a bunch of them. And then the valuation on it really, again, comes down to where you wanted it to go. And I think at that time I was valuing it at more like six cents. It's been such a long time. This was like my early days of doing crazy shenanigans like this. I'm doing yeah. math off the top of my head, just on the calculation. So I've got $1,500 is what I got, like six cents times 25,000, which is really yeah. interesting. That's really cool. I did, this is next level for me. So that sounds about right. And it's also older, wiser me, uh, making more money me also does the math of, well, how much is this two days of my time worth, right? Um, if you're young and stupid and you don't have anything better to do and you like being on planes, my superhero ability is the ability to sit in crappy airline planes for insanely long amounts of time and not not actually hurt. Um, as I get older, that's less true. But back then, like 40, 48 hours on a plane was like no big deal. Like, it's like, cool, I can read a book and like do other things, watch movies, like binge watch a bunch of shows. And so it was no big deal to me. Uh, now, maybe not so much. But yeah, you have to do sort of that math and figure out what it's worth. And that's kind of how you figure out whether it's worth taking these trips. Um, I don't remember what your original question was. So. You're answering it. I was going to uh, hope you dug into that story because it's such a good one. I'm a big fan, but I'm the same way. I like flying. I like traveling. I don't remember it, what it was like now. I don't know if I like it anymore, but um, yeah, I could, I could spend a lot of time on planes. It's, it's not a problem. Movies, alcohol, what else do you need yeah. in life? That's, I should say that's one of the other things. Um, my 
first mileage run, and that's what you call this, right? When you're just flying to earn miles. My first mileage run was partly done because for a number of years, I was an in Alaska, or actually, no, I was with Delta at the time, I was a silver medallion, and that's the lowest level of status. So that comes at like 25,000 miles. And then the next level up is the gold level, and that comes at 50,000 miles flown. You get this thing where you look at the, re- the benefits, and silver is like, it's pretty menial. Like you, you can occasionally upgrade from economy to like economy plus, in a crazy situation where there just happens to be an empty first class seat, you might get upgraded, but the chances are so rare because pre-pandemic airlines were just packing airplanes full, right? That's why people were often getting kicked off and like double booked and people would fight over seats and crap like that. And so you you start to do that that mental calculation again of well what would my life be like if i had that next level up of status and what does that get me and one of the things that that got you uh is the ability to cancel airline tickets and rebook without any fees and as i thought about all my travels there was always the the notion of like spend less why are you spending so much on travel And so part of it was, well, you're telling me to go these places and you're not giving me enough time. And so I'm buying a lot of last minute airline tickets that are much more expensive than had I actually planned ahead. And so I started this idea of, you know, if I got that next level up, I could just buy like a few different options, right? I could could buy two or three airline tickets for various dates that I think this might happen and then if I can cancel them for free, then I just cancel them. And so I started doing that um, once I got that status. But in order to get that status, I, I was on the cusp. I think I needed an extra like 10,000 miles. Is that 40? And I needed 50. And it's so close. So you're like, cool, 5,000 miles is, again, Portland to New York. So if I do that twice, right, then I can, I can actually make this work. And so I, I'd found a plan that worked uh, that got me enough miles. And so I went and did it. And then suddenly I was gold status and I had this status and you realize like, not only could I do my crazy scheme of buying all the airline tickets and canceling whatever I didn't use, I could like get more upgrades. And so that just kind of snowballed. I just remember the question that you had asked earlier about uh, the value of miles. And so Yeah, I was talking about miles being actual distance flown or segments for for status. One of the problems is all the airlines realize that the distance flown is not a good indicator of how much people are spending. And really, that's all they want. They want you to spend more. It's good business. I can't fault them for that. But, you know, if I'm paying 300 bucks to fly 25,000 miles on my crazy journey, like zigzagging across the U.S., they're they're losing a ton of money on idiots like me. So they switched the programs uh, and it started with Delta and Delta tends to be the leader in the airline space. And then United followed suit and then American followed suit. Uh, Thankfully, Alaska sort of didn't, but basically they switched it from a mile being an actual mile of distance to a mile being 
uh, how much money you spent times a certain multiplier. Um, and so basically airlines now, it's really hard to get these great deals uh, and do these mileage runs because generally the miles that you're going to earn on things comes down to how much you spend. And that kind of sucks. Yes. That's a shame. That's a real shame, but it's, it's kind of cool to know the difference. I don't know. I'm, I, I think the second part of the question that I'm curious about is obviously you chose Alaska because of your location. Um, but do you have any favorite credit cards that you use? And that's a big one for me. Speaking of which that you love for travel points. Yeah. I've obviously got like all of the airline credit cards for the ones that I fly. I've got the hotel credit cards for the hotels that I stay at. To be honest, for most of your listeners, unless you're really willing to to dive deep into things, my favorite credit card is the Barclay Arrival Plus. Um, I don't even know if they still offer it. Oh, they do. Oh, nope. Well, that said, my favorite that I use is the Barclay Arrival Plus World Elite MasterCard, which has a crazy long name. Very fancy. Um, it's not that fancy. It doesn't cost that much. I think the annual fee is less than a hundred bucks. Um, and it basically pays two point something percent. I want to say like 2.1%, but basically, yeah, every dollar you spend is worth two points for them. A point is essentially like a penny off. Right. And so you're getting 2% back. And so they do a thing though, where if it's a point spent on travel, you get like an extra amount back. And I don't remember what it is at this point. Um, cause I've kind of stopped caring <laughs> due to the pandemic, but yeah, basically the idea is like, if you go and you buy a hundred bucks worth of whatever you get 200 points. Right. Um, and so that's worth two bucks. So 2% back. And then if you go and spend that two bucks on something travel related, an airline or a hotel, a taxi cab, uh, they'll reimburse you. So you you go into your credit card statement and you just say, this, this item that's here, use my points and pay that. And so then it'll just like strike it from your, your credit card statement. And if it was a travel thing, they'd be like, oh, that's travel. And you spent, you know, a thousand points on it, we'll give you 50 points back. And so you got like a little bit more incentive to spend on travel related things versus the regular 2% that you'd get on, you know, bills and everyday crap that you have to deal with. So that was my favorite, partly because it was really simple. You didn't have to think about categories because there's a ton of credit cards where you could do categories and they get 5% back. And that's great if you can keep track of all of this stuff. But I feel like for your everyday person who's just like, I just want that extra little reward, right? I know that I need something, but I don't want to think about it. Barclays, the Arrival Plus was fantastic because you didn't have to think about things. On top of that, a lot of the perks were really great. Like they'll do full coverage car insurance when you're renting a car. So you rent a car, you decline the insurance, you just pay with it pay for the car with this credit card. And literally they cover everything, um, including like roadside assistance, right? So if you got a flat and you didn't have AAA service or whatever, you just call up the credit card and be like, Hey, I'm stuck in the middle of nowhere. I got a flat. Can you send out a 
tow truck and they would. So there were a lot of like other residual benefits that they had that were really great. Um, but yeah, at this point, my credit card stuff is all like really stale. I'm paying probably more in fees than I should because I just don't want to think about it during pandemic. Other great credit cards. Um, you know, you asked about my, my loyalties uh, and I mentioned Hilton and IHG. Hilton was partly because that first company that I was with, that I was going to New York all the time, their, the corporate like officially sanctioned hotel was a Crown Plaza in Times Square, which is a great place to stay. Uh, and obviously like made a lot of money. So that got me on IHG. And then the company that we worked for when we'd have that conference in New York, that was at the Hilton in New York. And so I literally remember it's like, oh, we're staying at the Hilton and I was just starting the job. And so I signed up for the Hilton and I was like, by the way, I'm traveling. I'm going to a Hilton. Can you just ship the card there? And they did. So I showed up like in New York, literally like a few weeks into this job, I think, or a month into this job. I'm checking in. And I'm like, oh, by the way, I think you have some mail for me. And they like call up like the mail room. They're like, oh yeah, we'll send that up to your room. And so I get up to my room and there's like this envelope and I open it up and I'm like, yep, here's my credit card. <laughs> the IHD credit card uh, that I've got is the old version. They've got a new one, but the new one still offers it. You get one free night every year. So it's like your annual free night. And that's pretty nice. Even though it's just one night, it's, I don't know, you can spend it at some pretty, pretty nice places. I love that. That's a great tip. Um, yeah, that's what I'm dealing with right now. So my credit card recommendations, which probably are quite dated, would be really basic, like chat Chase Sapphire Preferred. And I have a city card that's great that I'll put in the show notes. But right now I just have a ton of points and I don't know what to do with them because I, like you said, I'd like to spend them. The whole point was to like buy an international flight with them, but now they're just sitting there. So yeah. I don't know. Do you think it's good to just go buy stuff in points or like investigate cash back credit cards instead of travel credit cards? I know that like travel deals are always the best way to go, but I'm, I'm worried about these points I'm sitting on and I'm paying the fee every year for these points. So I can't turn the credit card, which is annoying as well. Yeah. So I'd say again, you know, if you've got those high fee cards, I think you said you've got the Chase Sapphire, the reserve is the one that's like the super expensive. Um, similarly, I've got the city prestige, which is like uber expensive. Uh, and they've cut back a bunch of their benefits over the past, like two, three years, uh, which really sucks. So that's one that like, I definitely want to cancel eventually. <laughs> Uh, and I can downgrade that. So there's the city prestige and there's the city something else that's just below it. There's some minor differences in what a point is worth when you do that. Um, so that's one reason that I'm holding on to it. So I think for my case, I'll probably call them up and just try to negotiate that they waive the fee this year. And that's something that you probably want to do as well. That's a good tip. I didn't even think of that. I've just been paying for it forever, like saving these points, hoarding the points. Like you said, um, I'm a bit of a point and a cash hoarder as well. Yeah, that's. A, I mean, the problem with points is that they're not cash, right? You can't get interest for them. You can't invest them anywhere. They literally sit there and just devalue. 
That is such a good point. What do you think about credit card churning in general? Because like the stuff we're talking about, the credit cards we both have, I'm like, oh, but that offer isn't around anymore because it changes so fast and they, they like do the offer, then they take away the stuff. So I, I'm like an advocate of it, but I know it can mess up your credit. What do you think? What are your thoughts? How, how should one approach that if they have great credit already and no debt? Yeah. If you've got great credit, then go for it. Um, some of that is recognizing how credit score is generated. Uh, and I know you've got a YouTube video on this because I've watched it. And so some of that is the number of accounts that you have and how long those accounts have been around. Um, assuming that you've got good credit, you've probably got enough accounts and you've got enough of a history that churning a few credit cards every year isn't a big deal and you're not going to take a hit. So if you can stay on top of it, if you have a nice spreadsheet and you're tracking what the requirements are, because often it's a certain amount of spend in a certain amount of time, like $5,000 in the first three months, then go ahead and do that. Like it's definitely worth it. Those bonuses are, can be huge. You know, a lot of those bonuses are on the level of, you know, rough valuation, like 500 to $700 of value. And so why wouldn't you do that? Right. If I could do that with two or three credit cards every year, that's an extra thousand bucks or 1500 bucks, uh, totally worth doing if you can stay on top of it. Uh, and you're willing to invest the time in, in paying attention to that. I think for folks like you and me, where we're sitting on a mountain of points, like I don't need more points, so I'm not going to do it. Um, but that said, I totally did it when I was starting out. I would churn credit cards very regularly. Uh, credit card companies have started cracking down on that. Um, and so there's uh, you, you often, if you're into the credit card churning or you start looking into it, you'll run across a thing that's referenced as the 524, I believe. And it's like, I believe it's City um, or maybe it's Chase. I don't quite remember because, again, I haven't done churning in a long time. But basically, they limit you to five credit card signups in a 24-month period. Uh, so it kind of limits the number of credit cards that you can get and and then cancel and then get more. And so that's one tip. Uh, pay attention to companies that have that. The other tip is if you are starting to get into churn, there's a timing issue uh, because credit card companies will do a credit pull on your, your credit report. And as you know, credit pulls impact your credit score. So when it does that, when it impacts your credit score, often that comes up as a flag of like, oh, why were other people looking at this? And so that can affect your uh, approval for getting a credit card. So one of the tips that people have is to apply for them all at once, because if everybody's making a request at the same time, they don't see each other's requests. And so it won't affect your ability to get approved. So if you apply for, for two or three at the same time, that's better than trying to space it out. And if you were thinking like, well, if I could do like three or four per year, I'll do one every quarter, that actually will have more of an impact on your credit score than doing them all at once. Very clever. I like that a lot. What are the most credit cards that you think you've turned in a year? I want to say like six or seven. Very cool. Yeah, I guess what I'm curious about is like, so if you apply for them all at once, right? How do you go about closing them without messing up your credit history? 
Yeah. I mean, so that's the thing, right? Is you're, you're only keeping them around just long enough. You know, a lot of them, the big bonuses were because they were expecting you to stick around for a year and pay that fee. And so they would allow you to sign up without paying for the fee. And then your one year would come around. And so again, keep a spreadsheet of this information. So I would just have these as like calendar dates, like, cool, a couple weeks or, you know, a month before this is coming up on my one year, call them up and cancel. Uh, And generally, you know, it's much easier to cancel a credit card than it is many other things. Like people cancel credit cards all the time. And so you generally don't get those, those phone agents who are like, haranguing you and being like, why are you canceling and like making it super difficult? A lot of times they're just like, okay, you want to cancel? That's fine. Like there's definitely the incentive for them to keep you, but they're really good at knowing whether you're somebody that's worth fighting for. Right. And so when you're doing that negotiation of like waive the fee, you're showing them like, I'm probably worth fighting for if you can do something for me. Uh, But the folks that call up that are literally just like, I'm churning, cancel my credit card. (laughs) They're going to be like, cool, good luck, have fun. Um, And in fact, a lot of the credit cards now, like Amex, the last time I canceled that, that was just purely through the website. I didn't even have to deal with somebody. I used, there used to be an SPG um, card, American Express, and it was when Sheraton was around before they got bought by Marriott. And they actually like would not let me go. They talked to me in, they kept like throwing offers at me and finally I kept it a little while longer. But actually that pertains to a question I have. So if you cancel a card, do your points go away or do you have to keep the card open in order to have your points? Depends on what the points are. If the points are credit card points, uh, they'll go away unless you have another credit card in you know that line that uh, shares those points. So again, you know, if you've got those high fee credit cards, you can look at downgrading because most of them have a mid tier card that has lower fees that uses the same points. Uh, that said, the points may be value different. So with the city line, the card that I have was valuing a point at like one point one and two thirds cents, essentially one point six seven, right, or one point six. Uh, but if you went down a level, then it was only valued at 1.3. And so then you had to do, again, more mental math and stuff and figure out, is it worth me saving this money? So with credit card points, you do have to worry about whether they'll go away. And that's one reason I haven't canceled this card. For airline points, hotel points, those all live on your account with that, that company. And so those won't go away. So the way that, that that typically works is the airlines and the credit card companies are separate companies, right? If you get a Delta Airlines credit card, that's going to be uh, the credit card company. And so what happens is Delta Airlines works with the credit card company and says, hey, we'll sell you, you know, 100 million miles and you can distribute them however you want. And it's free for you to use and we'll sell them at a discount. And so the credit card company buys those miles and uses those as incentives for that credit card. But once they give you that mile, that's now an issue between you and that airline and like Delta, right? And so the credit card company has really no say in after you've gotten those miles, like whether they go away, whether they stay, 
et cetera. Yeah, that, that's a really good tip. That's really helpful. I love it. Do you have a, I'd love to know sort of what your thought process was because you did do the digital nomad thing. What inspired that and how did you set yourself up for success in where you stayed and how you approached your credit card points? So what, what prompted that was I got divorced. My life kind of exploded. And so I lived in Portland, Oregon before because my ex-wife, her family's from here. And so we moved to be closer to family. And so my notion was I travel like 60% of the year, almost 70% of the year. Why, why should I live in Portland when I have no family here? Like I've got friends. I like my friends, but I could literally live anywhere or nowhere. So why not? And when you get divorced and you realize your life is kind of exploded, your definition of you changes. So why not? Why not live nowhere and go explore the world and like try to find yourself? I have advice about that and I'll get to that later, <laughs> finding yourself. But generally, yeah, that was the idea it was like, let's just live nowhere and travel for work and stay wherever work takes me. And then that kind of got to the point where like, sometimes there were longer stretches between times and I would get this itch. And so it was like, cool, I'm going to Europe. Um, but the next, next thing that I have to be at is like back in the States and it's like three weeks away. So I've got three weeks in Europe. Do I really want to stay in you know, Amsterdam, where I've been a million times, and I love Amsterdam, or I can explore someplace new, right? And so I started just exploring new places, and it got to the cadence that I was staying in a new place every week, which I do not recommend. So you asked about like how you plan for that, how you budget for that and things. When I got divorced, part of my notion was I'm going to go to New York because that's where the company that I worked for was. They have a fantastic office in the New York Times building, amazing views, and the people that work there are amazing. Uh, I love the people that work there, super friendly. So it was very grounding. Uh, working remotely and traveling a lot, the idea of I'm going to live in New York for a month and actually go into an office every day and do that kind of like nine to five thing and see people every day and like just hang out. Um, that was pretty grounding. So that was one thing. The other thing is being a tech company, they had a lot of food. So they would cater in lunches Monday, Wednesday, Friday. That helped me cut costs in New York. So I kind of had budgeted based on New York prices. And what everybody that I knew there told me was, Basically, yeah, if you want a studio in New York, that's going to be about $3,000 a month, which is nuts. But it's like, cool, I can swing that. Um, so that became my threshold. Basically, $3,000 a month for housing is the limit, and that's the upper limit. So as, as low as I can go, I'll do it. But that kind of opened up a lot of things for me. So Airbnb, you're thinking, cool, $3,000 a month is basically 100 bucks a night. That's kind of how I planned things was, number one, where am I going? Do I want to stay there? If not, what's close that I can get to? And then is it cheaper than a hundred bucks a night? That is very cool. I have some other friends that are currently digital nomading as well, kind of doing what I'm doing, which is like driving around the country and 3000 is their, their budget. So, which it's, is... In California, that was their rent. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good budget for the Western world. If you're thinking United States, Canada, Western Europe, three thousand bucks, depending on where you're at, 
can be pretty pretty slim. Um, just because you know New York, I was actually renting an apartment from a friend of a friend um, who had he had just moved out and he had a month left on his lease, so is able to do it. Um, it's really hard to get short term leases that kind of fit that budget in most like major cities. So if you're looking at expensive cities like Paris, 3000 bucks a month is not going to get you much. You're going to have to start looking elsewhere. And that also kind of fueled again, that was like, where am I at? Where do I want to go? And is it affordable? Um, and that led to some interesting excursions. Uh, we were talking about Estonia being a tiny country in Europe. I went to Luxembourg because you know, we've all heard Luxembourg. It's this tiny little country in Europe. Who who knows where the heck Luxembourg is? So I was like, well, I know where it is and it's a short train ride. So let's get on a train and go check out Luxembourg, which by the way is super cool. Um, highly recommend Luxembourg. But again, it was partly because it's close by and like very few people go there as tourists. So you can get a pretty decent Airbnb for relatively cheap. That's one of the reasons I wanted to ask actually. So what is your ultimate penultimate trip or what is your favorite country, favorite restaurant? Like what's the good travel tips that you have? Everybody always asks that of, of the nomading, like what's your favorite city or like things like that. In my nomading, I always say that I've had really three favorite places and it's, it's not really the places themselves, it's really the experience. And I think that's one thing as as you travel more, you start to realize it's never exactly the place, it's always the experience that you have there. And that informs so much. So I'll start with the number one, I've mentioned my partner is Estonian. We went to Estonia. Um, Estonia is a fantastic place that you should travel. If you are thinking of nomading and you're like, yes, that $3,000 budget is way an upper limit. I want someplace cheap. Estonia is a good place to go. They have fantastic restaurants, really great craft brew scene. They've got the old city, like most old European cities, the old town, which used to be you know, a fortress. So it's got the high walls and the, the turrets and the castle kind of look. Um, Nearly everybody speaks English in the capital in Tallinn. They've got great public transportation. So overall, it's just a great place to stay, especially if you can go in the summer because it's so far north that like the sun rises at like 5 a.m. and sets at like 3 a.m. So it's just sunny all the time when you're out there. Summer weather there's perfect. Highly recommend it. So that's that's one place. And obviously the experience there is falling in love, right? At least for me. You can also fall in love there. Uh, Estonian women love Americans. That's so romantic. I love it. (laughs) The second place that I would say is my favorite is the Faroe Islands. So the Faroe Islands is this tiny set of islands that's like halfway between Iceland and Norway, directly north of Scotland, in the middle of the Atlantic, super, super remote. To get there, you you either have to fly to uh, Scandinavia, like Copenhagen, and then take a flight from there to the Faroe Islands, or you have to fly to Iceland and then take a small plane over. It is incredibly remote. It's not very populous. There are more sheep than people there. It's not as beautiful as Iceland. They don't have quite the mountains and like the volcanoes and the waterfalls and stuff, they have some of that. 
And so you get some of that beauty, but it's, to me, it was the remoteness because part of the, part of the journey of going nomad was again, discovering myself and figuring out like, who am I outside of this relationship that had defined me for over a decade? One of the things when you're in the Faroe Islands though, that's amazing is they've got a two Michelin star restaurant that's in the middle of nowhere. So it's like the middle of nowhere on islands in the middle of nowhere. In order to get to the restaurant, like most people rent a car and so they'll send you directions. If you don't have that, they're like, you have to use this one taxi company because they're the only taxi company that won't get lost coming here. Uh, and part of it too is they're, they tell the taxi company to drive this very scenic route, uh, which was the old highway. And you end up getting to this place and you get out and then they pick you up from, it's like a farm and they pick you up in a, a Jeep because it's kind of rocky and you're bouncing around in this Jeep as they take you up into the restaurant. Um, and then it's just the most amazing food in this crazy, like if you've ever eaten at any of these like two or three Michelin star restaurants that are ultra uber creative uh, places like Alinea or you know, 11 Madison Park or the French Laundry, like they're on that level. And it was a surreal experience, partly because when you go there, they have this communal table that you're like, if you're a couple or a foursome, you can get your own table, but they have this communal table for people that are just like, I'm open, right? I'm open to interesting experiences. So I sit at this table and it's like, there's a guy from Canada and a doctor from Denmark. There was a woman from the New York who actually was a writer for the New Yorker magazine. So if you go and Google for Faroe Islands, New Yorker magazine, you'll probably find her article. Uh, if you read it, I am the young tech person from New York because didn't really know where to tell her I was from. And New York was where I had last, I guess, lived. Uh, but she actually documented the whole thing, right? About like foodies that are going to the extreme ends of the earth to find like the most amazing meals. Uh, just to give you a sense of the meal too, they had this dish uh, that kind of looked like sushi, but it was a raw piece of sheep that was incredibly marbled. It looked like a fatty piece of salmon. And then rather than rice, it was lichen so like moss essentially like this local moss so you have this moss with this like piece of sheep over it and then they had it sounds off-putting but it looked like black hair like a little bit of like like if if i had shaved right um sprinkled over it but it actually wasn't so it's actually this very specific seaweed that grows in the faroe islands that smells exactly like black truffles for the foodies who are imagining this now, right? You're imagining it's sushi, but with lamb, essentially, incredibly tender lamb that smells like truffles. Because I was still working, I would go out in the morning and go hiking and stuff. And then basically mid-afternoon to like midnight, I would work. Um, so that would put me back on like US hours. But there was a point where I was hiking. It got super foggy. I was in the middle of nowhere. There was probably nobody around, no human around for miles, um, except for there were sheep. And so 
somewhere in this fog hidden was a sheep that was just like calling out. And so I would just yell back to it. Uh, and we had this back and forth thing. I never ended up finding it, but yeah, there was just that great feeling of like sort of embracing my aloneness. Um, and so I love that. Uh, and then I will say the third, third favorite place in the world is Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, so I went out there for a work thing. I had a day before my work actually started. There was a show on Netflix and it featured a chef, uh, Rocio Sanchez. Rocio Sanchez is a Mexican-American woman who used to be the pastry chef at Noma. Noma for a long time was widely regarded as the best restaurant in the world. It's a restaurant in Copenhagen. Um, so Rocio Sanchez decided to go back to her roots and she started a taco restaurant in Copenhagen. I had met her once at an event that she was doing in Portland. And I was like, yes, I've got to go try these tacos because I've only had her pastry stuff and it blew my mind. So her tacos have to be amazing. So I start walking and I'm sort of getting lost, but on my way to the taco shop, I see a sign that says slow food festival Nordics. And I'm like, oh, well, that sounds fun. So I take a detour, I go to this food festival and it ends up being like this old warehouse. And so I walk into this warehouse and there's a bunch of different purveyors of like various food things. And right at the front is this group and they're like, hey, we're from the Faroe Islands. We grow seaweed. You should check some of the stuff out. And it was like, I was in the Faroe Islands two weeks ago oh, I see you have the black seaweed that looks like hair that smells like truffles. Oh, you've been to the restaurant. <laughs> um, so that was really cool, right? And so they're like, well, we're actually going to be part of a seaweed tasting. If you go just next door, there's like a kitchen and we're going to be doing this demonstration with seaweed growers from, from uh, Norway and from Denmark. And we're going to try all these different seaweeds. So I'm like, cool, that sounds amazing. Let's go do that. So I go next door do this whole seaweed thing, end up like chatting with this woman next to me who has actually had a fantastic story about how she worked at Chez Panisse. Um, and so we're like hitting it off, just like really jiving on food. And this guy comes up to us, like, cause at this point the seaweed demo is done and we're just hanging out and he's like, excuse me, I, I don't want to interrupt, but we're a group of heritage apple cider makers and we were supposed to do a cider tasting and nobody showed up. Do you want to come drink cider with us? Like, of course, yes. Yeah, like, do you have to ask? So we go outside and yeah, there's literally like two or three other people and then like these three cider makers. And they're telling us these stories about how they found these this old, like, you know, one of them got this farm that was going to be, you know, torn down and, you know, paved over kind of a thing. And they wanted to save it. And the other was like, kind of like we have a hippie commune and we're finding all these cool old apples and like resurrecting them and we're drinking cider. So we're getting a little tipsy and, and that's been fun. I do that. And yeah, again, amazing stories, amazing ciders. At this point, it's like the most incredible day that I've had in a very long time. And it just gets better. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a lie. It sounds like I'm just bullshitting, but I swear to you, this is true. I'm walking back through the kitchen area that we were doing the seaweed tasting. And 
one of my favorite chocolate makers from Iceland is there. And he's like, hey, we're going to start this chocolate tasting. Also, I've just gotten these cacao nibs from, I think he said like Costa Rica or somewhere. He's like, I've never made chocolate with them, but they're amazing. We're going to make chocolate right now. The, the chocolate company, if you've, if, if you've ever seen it, uh, it used to be really hard to get. Now it's pretty widely available. You can get it in like Whole Foods and stuff. It's called Omnom, O-M-N-O-M. Um, they've got really great, beautiful packaging. But yeah, so he, he was like, sit down. We're going to try all the chocolate that I've, I make, and we're going to show you how to make chocolate. Like, cool, of course. Like, why not? Who doesn't love chocolate? Uh, and this actually is the inspiration of why I've started making chocolate because he made it seem so easy. He's a liar. No, chocolate making is actually fun. It's the hard part is the tempering and getting that right, especially if you want to be as pure and true as you can to the the chocolate, um, not using any additives and trying to minimize the amount of cocoa butter that you add. Um, But that's a whole nother story. So anyway, hanging out, we're making chocolate, we're eating chocolate, super fun. And then by this point, I'm like, okay, I've got to go get these tacos. Like that was the goal. And I'm, I'm now like several hours delayed, but it turns out that this whole warehouse area that it was in was like one tiny corner of this entire festival. So as I go outside, I realize that there's arrows pointing me further down this alleyway and it opens up into this giant courtyard kind of open space And by this point, it's like kind of end of the day. So most people are packing up. So I kind of quickly go around and I'm like checking out all the different purveyors of what they've got. The other cool person that I met is a distiller from Iceland. So if you ever fly Iceland Air, uh, Iceland Air, if you get booze on board, they'll have a company that's called uh, 64 Degrees. Um, They make a bunch of liqueurs like uh, rhubarb and crowberry and like these really amazing flavorful liqueurs. They make gins and, and other spirits. Turns out that that dude was there. So like walking along and I see it and I'm like, Oh, I love that crowberry liqueur. It's really flavorful. Um, and he was like, you've had this before. Like Americans don't really get this. Uh, and I was like, Oh yeah, I fly Iceland air a lot. He's like, Oh, that makes sense. So we start jiving a bit. So at this point, I'm like super, super late. We end up like I spend more time. I finally at some point realize like I need to go get tacos. I show up at the taco place like five minutes before they close. I get tacos. And that's basically at that point, I'm like, I'm done. This is the best day of my life. If I die right now, I'm a happy man. Um, so that's that's the third place. That's so fun. Yeah, that um, brings me back. That's the best part of traveling that I miss so much is just those like spontaneous days where you just meet somebody and all of these magical things are kind of unfolding before you um, in a spontaneous way. So such a great storyteller. I love it. I do have to say, like, I'm normally not a spontaneous person. That is one of the freedoms that you get when you're nomading, when you don't have an agenda. Um, and that's why I love traveling with you because you're far more spontaneous than I am. Um, and I do know that was often like a little bit of a friction between us is like, no, we're like, we have a plan or I have a plan. And you're like, no, let's go chase this butterfly. Um, and always, always a hundred percent of the time chasing that butterfly or whatever it was, was the thing to do. Um, 
So that's, that's my encouragement to everybody else. Be as spontaneous as you can when traveling leads to the best experiences. That is so beautiful. I love that. That's a really profound way to put travel. I'm glad that me chasing the butterfly didn't drive you completely insane. On that note, I'm in Austin. Do you have any places that you recommend I see or anything I eat out here? Yeah. I mean, eat all the barbecue you can. Thankfully, there are things like gold belly. Uh, I discovered gold belly early on in the pandemic. So um, have had plenty of Texas barbecue, uh, not quite as good as having it in person because it's frozen and shipped to you and you have to reheat it, but it's, it's a good, uh, you know, I fill in for now. Uh, well, the other thing, one of my favorite donut places in the world is Gordo's in, in Austin. Um, yeah, Gordo's is kind of insane, but definitely delicious. What kind of donut should I get at Gordo's? There's one that's like bananas and peanut butter and stuff like that. Yum. And for context, like Jason and I first bonded because he gave me a tour of Portland when we were there for a conference. And I, um, the reason we worked together is we found him on Twitter as a, a hiring opportunity. And then he showed me all around Portland and he took me to a great donut place and another place that had, um, what is that type of, what is the name of that cuisine that you like? They deconstruct everything. Yeah. There was a, there used to be a, like a sort of modernist, I guess, molecular gastronomy kind of thing. Um, What's the one? People right. kind of frown on that word right now. Or Why? That phrase. Why do they? I don't know. It's, it's a bit pretentious and it's not really what it is. At least when, when you do it well, right. That, that was always the the trick with a lot of those modernist techniques is, are you doing it just because you can, or are you doing it because you're making the food better? Right. Uh, And if you're making the food better then by all means, like do it. But molecular gastronomy was usually the folks that were like, I just want to show off and play with liquid nitrogen and pretend that I'm fancy. So what would you say is like a good way to kind of save money on the road or pack? Do you have any good like travel hacks that are like, you you always impressed me with your suitcase and minimalism. It was outrageous and so impressive. But what like, what's a great suitcase, for example? I don't really have tips on suitcases. I, again... Like many things, I'm extremely opinionated, but my opinions only apply to me. Um, So I've got a Samsonite hard shell suitcase. I prefer hard shell suitcases because I tend to mule a lot of goods, um, and so I want to protect them. Um, I'm often the person that's buying booze and other things and smuggling them into back to the U.S., and so having a hard shell protects them. The other thing for me was I prefer a T-handle, and that's really hard to find in suitcases. So a T-handle has a single post and then looks like a T, because obviously if it's got a single post, that's less room that it takes up inside your suitcase, right? So for me, it's the efficiency. There's one thing, one tip that I would offer for folks. It's the one bag method, one bag, I believe, dot com, the art and science of traveling light. Um, So one bag dot com espouses the bundle pack method. And the bundle pack method is essentially a lot of folks are used to grouping 
things together, right? And folding them up. And so you've got like all your shirts and all your pants and these are kind of each separate things. Um, and the bundle method is essentially to minimize wrinkles, lay everything flat and then put your smaller, like your bigger things on the outside, your smaller things on the inside. And when you wrap it up in a bundle, those big things really don't have folds. So you don't get as many wrinkles. So I kind of use a modified bundle pack method. And that's generally my, my preferred way of going. The downside that everyone points out is that essentially once you get to your place, you have to unpack everything because all of your small items like socks and underwear and whatever is in the middle. And so you have to unpack it all to get to those. And it's not such an issue if you get used to it. Um, If you are doing a string of places like in rapid succession, if you're a business traveler and you're like, I got five places to go and I'm in each for a night, uh, it probably is pretty bad. But if you're, you know, like me and you're traveling the world, oh, you know, a place every week, it's not so bad. That's a good tip because I didn't unpack all my stuff when I got here and I've been like cranky the last few days trying to find stuff and reaccommodate. I'm not like the traveler that I used to be. It's all been an adjustment, but it's good to just unpack and have everything out. Um, did you have any like good tips for making flights more relaxing or comfortable easier? And similarly, like if you're only at a place a week at a time, I'm that type of person, the chase the butterfly person, but how did you not get super exhausted switching locations and repacking and all of that? Those are two great questions. Um, for flights, I mean, part of it is just that superpower of being able to deal with long flights and crappy seats. Um, it definitely helps if you have status and you can bump up to economy plus or you know premium economy or business or first or whatever. Do you not get jet lagged? Like how was your jet lag after the two day mile run? Yeah. So jet lag for me for the mile run, like I didn't even bother with like adjusting time, right? You just keep time because you know, in two days you're coming back to it for jet lag. I try to pre-adjust and some of that pre-adjustment is again, things that apply to me that I don't necessarily espouse for other people. Uh, I drink, I don't want to say I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't abuse alcohol, but I definitely use alcohol. Um, and so my own personal taste, like I generally have a whiskey every night and that's kind of what I do. Cause I'm super into whiskey, but if I drink too much, one of the things that happens, particularly if I don't drink water is I'll get dehydrated and then I'll wake up in the middle of the night. This turns out can be used as a handy tool. Um, so if you're flying from the US to Europe, you're losing time. And so I had found that if I take an evening flight, because most flights to Europe are like evening and you wake up in the morning and you're you're in Europe and you feel crappy because you haven't gotten a good night's sleep. Um, But if you actually decide like, hey, I'm not going to stay up for an extra hour and a half to wait for you to serve me really awful food, and then try to get like two hours of sleep before we land. Like if I get on the plane and you come around in that first half hour with those drinks and I just drink a bunch and kind of abuse my body and don't drink enough water as I should, then I'm going to fall asleep really quickly and my body will wake me up right about the time where 
you're going to be serving breakfast and telling us to get ready to land. So that's my travel hack for that is basically, unless you need that meal, it's not going to be a great meal. So you might as well eat in the airport with something that's decent and then just like try to go to sleep as quickly as possible. And if drinking a bunch of booze does that for you, then do that. Um, so that's my tip primarily because I travel a lot to Europe, although it does apply if you're going to Asia or coming back from Asia. The other travel tip though, is when you're coming back from Europe or you're traveling to Asia, if you're going West is just to stay up. Um, so I'm also that, that jerk that's like everybody else closes their windows and I'm like, no, I want the sunlight to keep my brain awake. And so I'm the guy that leaves the window open or at least cracked a bit on the way back from Europe, even though like it's a long flight and people are like, ah, oh, my brain's telling me I'm tired because I should be going to bed, you know, in like central European time. But my brain as someone that's doing this travel hack is saying, well, no, what's the time in New York or Portland or wherever I'm going? That's the time right now. And they're not going to sleep. So I'm not going to sleep. Um, and then obviously like when you land, you're super tired, but as long as you get a good night's sleep that night, that should be enough to, to reset you. So you got to kind of just lean into it rather than fight it. Yes. I love that tip for me. Um, yeah, I guess they say don't drink and hydrate like crazy. I'm, I've always done it your way as well. Just, just hit the champagne hard, especially if it's an international flight, um, also sunglasses and headphones are just so key. If I ever forget either of those things, probably cause I'm hungover from my plane drinking. Um, yeah, those are, those are great. I also recommend just grabbing food at the airport cause it tastes so much better than what they serve on the plane. So even if it's like a subway sandwich and that way, if you do what you do where you sleep, when you wake up, you've still got dinner or whatever you might need. So those are my hacks. Yeah, basically the only the only times you should eat on a plane and like make that a thing is if it's a long flight and you're in first class, like international first class, the food's usually pretty good. Also, I have to ask this one is um rental cars. I I hate how expensive they are. I feel like this is something some startup should fix, but hasn't. Um, do you have any tips? Cause you said points with rental cars, which is really intriguing. They, I just feel like they're so expensive more than necessary. Yeah, they are. And to be honest, most rental car companies, the points, I don't find them all that worth it because most of the places that I'm traveling are major cities, uh, for work. And so major cities have Uber and other things like that, or they've, you know, if you're traveling again to like Europe or Asia, they generally have good public transportation, so you don't really need a rental car. So I generally don't care about rental car points. If if you're in a sim- similar situation, things like Expedia um, or Travelocity or, or those sort of aggregate travel websites, they also have points. They're not as valuable, but it's definitely, I mean, some points is better than none. And so I'll usually book my rental car through that. Also because your credit card often provides that insurance, right? So check your credit cards. If they provide the insurance, then you can save a ton of money because you're not getting the insurance, um, which is one of the benefits of getting like status from rental car points is like, oh, you don't need to get insurance and we'll cover you and give you all these perks of like a better car. 
I could care less about the car I drive. It gets me from point A to point B. So for me, I just go straight up cheap. Good tip. I will keep that in mind. Perfect. Well, I think that's all the questions that I have for today. Do you have anything else that I didn't ask that you want to leave with the audience? No, we've covered a lot in this, in this episode. I can ask you questions all night. I'm just doing this out of respect to your partner. Um, but otherwise, I would just keep you on the phone forever. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope you come visit. Speaking of travel, come visit New Mexico. You'll have a free place to stay. We'll set you up. There's great. It's a great place to quarantine travel. Um, and we've got lots of great recommendations and food and, and all that. Yeah, I was going to say I'm missing green chili. Mm. It's just something that you don't really get outside of New Mexico, at least not, not really good green chili anyway. That's so true. If you really need a fix, I'll, I'll ship it to you. You could also use a company called Chili Monster is they'll ship it around the U S and, and they kind of saved my life a few times. Nice. Mm-hmm. But yeah, come by. We'll, we'll do like breakfast, green chili enchiladas. And have you been to New Mexico? I have driven through New Mexico. Oh, you've got uh, yeah. to come like experience it then. I think you would really like, um, the, it's a big restaurant scene in Santa Fe, very foodie oriented. Not sure if there's any Michelin star stuff, but um, yeah. And then there's Meow Wolf, 10,000 Waves Spa, uh, lots of spas everywhere. So good times, nice. guaranteed. But yeah, where can everybody find you? So if, if anyone has a question uh, they or they love this episode, where can they tweet at you or email you? Yeah. I'm on Twitter. I'm Git Bisect. Um, for all the nerds that are listening, makes sense. For everybody else, that's G-I-T-B-I-S-E-C-T. Uh, my DMs are always open, so feel free to just DM me on Twitter. Wow, that episode was mind-blowing. I had so much fun walking down memory lane with Jason, and I learned a ton as well. What was your favorite takeaway? Let me know in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube, or please remember to leave a review on iTunes. I can't tell you how much of a difference it makes in helping me get the show out to the world to help everybody become wealthier, healthier, and happier, which is my goal with this podcast. So thank you so much for helping me spread the word and leaving reviews and feedback so I can get better. Remember, as always to smash that like button if you're watching on YouTube and hit the notification bell or subscribe wherever you happen to be listening. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you might listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in and make sure to check back in next week for it, the next episode. It's a really good one. You're going to love it. Stay tuned.